Dear Lord, we do also come before you and thank you for this time to be in your word. ask you to bless it and work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last statistic I saw was that there were 16,000 murders in the United States in 2016. Um, I know in Minneapolis, uh, their murder rate's gone up uh, by multitudes. I mean, if you decide to remove the police, you're going to have more crime. And uh, so uh, their murder rate's going up. There's a lot of murder going on. And, uh, you know, if you think about that, there's about 40 murders a day in the United States. Um, and if you think about uh, self-murder, which is suicide, or murder of the unborn, you think about that too. There's a lot of murder going on in our country every single day. There's a lot of murder going on. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's staggering. Now, America is number 89 on the list of countries per capita concerning the murder rate. There's a lot of murder going on around the world. And uh, these statistics only reveal the outward action of actually murdering someone. Now, I believe we're going to see today that in shocking fashion, the Lord Jesus reveals that you don't need to be a murderer in action to be a murderer. And that it's really an issue of the heart, an issue of the heart. Uh, Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? And we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26. And we have finished our series in 1 Thessalonians. And so I'm praying about what we'll do next, which book we'll study next. And so as we uh, get to that point where we'll start, Lord willing, next week or the week after, just praying about what the Lord might want, uh, first of all, me to hear, all of us to hear, and then for you, that we might uh, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so as you're turning there to Matthew 5, 21 through 26, I want to just give you the context of the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is about the Messiah King, uh, Jesus Christ. Matthew is about God the Son who took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to his own, the Jewish people, those who would name his name, the Lord. And yet these Jews were in sin. They were in darkness. And Jesus graciously, having the way previously prepared for him by John the Baptist, repent. Uh, and so, and he's, for the kingdom is at hand. We see that Jesus preached and taught the kingdom and affirmed those things with the miraculous, that he was God in human flesh and that they needed to believe in him. And in the book of Matthew, coming to chapters 5 through 7, we call that the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we call it. But this portion that we're going to look at today, chapters 5 through 7, the verses within that, really uh, reveal uh, one principle in a sense. It reveals kingdom righteousness presented by King Jesus, which confronts phony righteousness, which is really lawlessness. You see, that's what Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, is about. It's about kingdom righteousness presented by the king, which confronts phony righteousness, which is really lawlessness. And so the Lord has begun with the Beatitudes, those things uh, blessed are, which describe those who are truly blessed, the characteristics of those who have a relationship with the living God, those who are blessed. We see that. And then having shown those Beatitudes, he has turned uh, from saying, blessed are those, to blessed are you. And he talks about the reality that in the midst of a sinful world, when one is obeying Christ, they're going to be persecuted. But you're blessed even for that. Blessed are you. Your reward in heaven is great. And that we believers are actually the salt of the earth. We are the flavor of the earth. We are the light of the world. When Christ's righteousness comes through us and we abide and trust in him, it flavors a dark and dead world that they might see those good works and then glorify uh, God who is in heaven as they're saved. And then we see that uh, the Lord made it clear that he came to fulfill his word and that only in him can his word be fulfilled in us. And from that point, he moves to reveal that unless your righteousness supersedes or or is is better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to make it in heaven. And so he addresses the reality with six corrections of their phony righteousness. You have heard it said, but I say to you. 
He's going to give six corrections about the Jews and their phony baloney righteousness, revealing that it's really issues of the heart that manifest then in true behavior of righteousness or lawlessness. And so we're going to see the first of those, which you will hear him say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, the God in, who, 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 who created everything, who is in human flesh in your midst, says to you, this is what I say to you. So again, we're going to see that King Jesus addresses the misconceptions about murder, revealing it is actually a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the heart. Okay, let's read through our passage, Matthew 5.21. Uh, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way and be first be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison, into prison. Truly, I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. And so, as I've mentioned, this is the first of those six statements that are very similar. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Here we have God, who took on human flesh, uh, confronting the phony righteousness and teaching of the Jews of that time, and thus the people who had willingly followed that phony teaching. And so, first of all, notice he begins with revealing what they had heard. And we're going to see what they heard heard was not incorrect, it was just incomplete. And that is often how Satan works. He gives you a part of the truth, which is true, to bait you in, but he doesn't give you all of it. And it appeals to your flesh, and appeals to your sinfulness, rather than to doing what is right. So Jesus is going to say, here's what you've been told. This is what you've heard. Notice what he says, verse 21. You have heard... That the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, who were the ancients? Literally, the term means of old. It speaks of men of old, men of long ago. And I believe it's speaking of those uh, those, uh, in the past who these teachers had received their teaching from, those religious leaders of old who had passed down this teaching concerning the Word of God or their interpretation of the Word of God. He said, you've heard the ancients were told, or you could literally say said, it's actually same same Greek word, you could say said, they said this, and then what did they say? You shall not commit murder, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now they're just repeating the first portion, Jesus is repeating what they repeat, and he's talking about the sixth commandment in Exodus. Exodus 20:13. Now, every version except for the King James says, you shall not commit murder. Not kill, it says murder, by the way. He says here, you shall not, in Exodus 20:13, you shall not murder. And so the people were taught that, but they were also taught something else, which is from uh, basically an understanding, and I'll show you this of the Old Testament. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, before we continue, I just want to differentiate between murder and killing. Murder is a crime. It is the taking of a life, one who is in God's image without just cause. And we need to recognize that Scripture does have provision for justified or the consequences for accidental killing, which is not murder. There are consequences, uh, but there is provision in Scripture for that. And as we'll see, Scripture makes it clear that capital punishment, just war, self-defense, and accidental homicide are not seen as murder and thus do not require capital punishment. You can look in the Old Testament, in in, in Leviticus, look in portions in there. Now, concerning murder, it is a heinous crime, a heinous offense. Uh, It was the first criminal offense in Scripture. Cain slew his brother, Abel. 
And by the time of Noah, the word of God reveals that the earth was full of violence. And then after the flood, God gave Noah instructions. And we see this before the law was given. God made it clear that punishment for murder was death. You can turn there. I'll read it for you. Genesis 9, verse 5. This is after the flood. He's telling, telling Noah. And he says, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it from every man, from every man's brother. I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he was made. That's what God said back after the flood. Murder is a heinous crime. Killing someone, murdering them, in, in, someone who is in the image of God. And uh, we have, uh, in uh, Exodus, we have clearly the, the, the God poured forth his provision for what should be done to uh, those who murdered in the law. Numbers, actually, Numbers 35. You can turn there, you can jot it down. Numbers 35, verse 16. And this is what God says. This is the consequence. So, so what Jesus is saying, you've heard you shall not murder. That's right. And here you've heard that they should be liable for the court. Well, here's what, where it comes from. Numbers 35, 16. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Exodus 35, 17. And if he struck down, or excuse me, not Exodus, Numbers. I'm sorry, putting you all over the place. Numbers 35, 17. And if he struck him down with a stone or by or a stone in the hand by which he may die, as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him with a wooden object by hand by which he may die, as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death, and he shall be put him to death when he meets him. So then Jesus reiterates... So if you're against capital punishment, you're against God's uh, word, by the way, just, you know, there is a consequence for shedding uh, blood of man who is in God's image, by the way. That's what God says, not me. And so we see here, uh, Jesus reiterates the truth back in our passage in Matthew that they had been taught from the law. He reiterates it. You have heard, the ancients were told, you should not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, that term liable to the court, that phrase in the Greek language, means subject unto judgment. Or actually, you could translate this way, guilty unto judgment. If you commit murder, you are guilty unto judgment. That's what he says. Guilty unto judgment. Now, I think the NASB makes an error here in their translation, and I don't know why they do so. But the phrase liable to the court here in 21, is the exact same Greek phrase in 22 that says, shall be guilty before the court. Same phrase. There's no difference in Greek. Why do they say liable and then guilty? I think they're trying to emphasize the increasing uh, punishment. But it's the same thing. You shall be guilty to the court. Guilty unto, which would be really the court would be judgment. Shall be guilty unto judgment. So on a surface level, it does not appear that anything they have heard is wrong or incorrect. You are guilty under the court. Your judgment is coming. The judge in the Old Testament was to be put to death for murder. Okay, That sounds correct, and it was correct. But what does God say in relationship to what they were taught? What does God in human flesh say? Verse 21 again, back in Matthew. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable or guilty unto judgment, guilty, liable unto the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty or liable unto judgment. You're just as guilty if you're angry. So, wow, we have a tremendous contrast here. But I say to you, God, who is, came in human flesh, You see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John writes, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is his human name. The Lord is salvation. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so Jesus says, 
You've heard through your teachers, based on the ancient teachers, that you're not to murder. And if you do, you're guilty before the court. But that's not the complete story, Jesus is saying. That's not the complete story. And here he says, but I say to you. You see, he was speaking to those who were professional externalists in religion. They were pros at keeping the Old Testament law, the the portions on the outside. They had clean cups on the outside, but they were rotten on the inside. They were pros at it. And he says, but the God who gave you that law, we see, says this. But I say to you, oh my, everyone who is angry with his brother. Wow. Well, who were their brothers? Well, obviously, other Jews in the covenant with the Lord. It was a Jewish nation. They were a community. It was the community in which they lived. It was everyone around them. You've heard it said to you, but you've only heard half the story. You've heard the external interpretation, which is true, yet there is much more to this. Everyone who is angry with his brother is just as guilty as a murderer. That's what he's saying. Same exact phrase. Now, the term angry here uh, comes from a term in the scriptures. That are, well, before I said, there are two different words in, in Greek for anger translated. One is a thumos. And I think of a thermos blowing up. That's the act of exploding in anger. That's the actual act. Boom! It actually is translated wrath sometimes. And God will pour out his wrath, his just righteous wrath. Same word. But then there's another word, orge, which speaks of that anger which we all know about, that internal resentment, that internal emotion that we experience that can result in orge. Certainly it can result in, in thumos, but it's, it's orge. It's this, it's this anger we understand. And I don't really need to explain the emotion of anger, right? We have all experienced it. We have all experienced it. You see, the question is, uh, what do I do when it comes? What do I do when I get angry? We've all experienced anger, and we're going to see there is a righteous anger for a moment. God is righteously angry at times, but it very quickly devolves into sin and a platform for Satan to take advantage. So here, with that in mind, we need to ask the question, is anger a sin? Is it a sin? Well, first of all, our passage says, Jesus says, anyone who's angry at his brother renders him guilty. Now, the term anger there is translated in a Greek way that means continually habitual anger. You're in a state of anger. You're in a state. You've been angry and you're still angry. But what about anger in general? Is it a sin? Well, Jesus became angry and did not sin. He cleansed the temple, right? John 2, Matthew 21, of those who had defiled it. But obviously, he was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And remember, uh, what brought about his anger, it was those wretched, wicked defilers of his temple who turned it into a money place. So then Jesus got angry. Can we get angry and not sin? Well, the reality is, yes, we do get angry at times and we don't sin. But the command that we have in Ephesians is to, get, is to be angry but not to sin. You could turn there. It's a short verse. I'll read it to you. Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. There we go. Anger. Sometimes we get anger. We see something that is very clearly evil. Uh, The abuse of a child. Whatever it might be. The wickedness we see in the streets at times. Very clearly evil. It can make you angry for a moment. And that can be righteous anger. But it's very quickly turned into unrighteous anger. And we also understand that we can be angry for a lot of different things. We can be angry if someone says something we don't like. Someone does things we don't like. We can be angry, whatever it might be. So, but that passage says, be angry, but do not sin. Very clear. You're on the edge. We'll see in James, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James 1. Your anger is not going to achieve anything. You've got to let it go to God who will take care of the issues in your life. He says, do not let the sun go down. And he says it in a very interesting way. Orge, don't be angry, or be angry, and sin not. And he says, but don't let the sun go down on your par, orgismos, which means alongside anger. It just means irritation. Don't even be irritated 
about the circumstance, even if it's righteous, by the time you go to bed. Because if you do, you give Satan a place in your heart towards those you are angry at. He says here very clearly, and do not give the devil an opportunity or a place. Man, this is one of the most disobeyed passages in Scripture, and it causes some of the most trouble in the body of Christ. And it may be because many in there are not who they think they are, as we'll see today as we look at this passage. Yes, we get angry. Sometimes we get angry for righteous reasons, sometimes for unrighteous reasons. But we are to confess it right away if it's unrighteous, and we're to let it go to the Lord if it's righteous anger. Let it go before the sun goes down. Otherwise, we give Satan a place. If you are irritated at that point by the time you go to bed, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Give it over or you're going to give Satan a place. And guess what? Your mindset towards that person, that circumstance, situation from that point on is going to be satanic. Satanic. Don't let the sun go down on it. If you want to give Satan a place in your life, believer, stay angry or irritated at somebody. Don't, you need to grasp the depth of what is being said here in this passage and then what Jesus is going to say. You give Satan, the arch enemy of God, the enemy of your soul, you give him a place in your thinking. God says that. Don't let it happen. It's very serious. Think of it this way. Would you let a mass murderer babysit your kids? Would you give him a place in your home? Of course not. Yet we give Satan, uh, who is infinitely more wicked than a mass murderer, by the way, a place in our thinking. Don't even be irritated at your brother or sister, or anyone in that context, as we'll see, before the sun goes down. You better forgive if you need to, or you're in trouble. Give it over to the Lord if you don't. Forgive, obviously, or uh, confess. But you don't know they sinned against me. They didn't pay me this rent. They, they were mean to me. They've ignored me. They're so, so being so unkind to me. What is that? It's me, me, me. This command doesn't have any qualifications. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Believer, if you're in Christ, you've been bought with a great price. And if you stay hangry, you cannot handle it. You must forgive. You must forgive. And people say, well, I have a right to be angry. Be angry. That's okay. Well, no, you don't. Because if you read a little farther in the book of uh, Ephesians, down at verse 31, just a few verses past what we just read, Ephesians 4:31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put it away. Every bit of it. He says, and all, along with all malice. And he says, and be what? Kind. Kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We've been forgiven so much. And it's the self-righteous that stay angry and still come to church, by the way. You don't realize how much they are sinful and how much God has forgiven. And Jesus is addressing the self-righteous. And throughout Scripture, we are, seen, we are, we are told and shown how dangerous anger is, how dangerous it is. Now, we all experience it. We have the momentary reality of it, and we have a choice at that point. We have a choice. Let me share some passages from the book of Proverbs. You can turn there and follow along, or I'll just read them, and you can jot down the verses from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 14.29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. And that sounds familiar. All throughout Scripture, the Old Testament God is spoken of as slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. But he who is quick-tempered exhibits folly. A hot-tempered man, Proverbs 15, 18, stirs up strife. But the slow to anger pacifies contention. Proverbs 16, 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit better than he who captures the sea. We're going to see... By ourselves, we can't do that. We're, we're helpless. But when we yield to Jesus, we acknowledge it in humility how sinful we are and that we want him to help us. He will help us. He's a gracious God. A man's discretion, Proverbs 19.11, makes him slow to anger. 
It is to his glory to overlook a transgression. Wow, to overlook, to let it go. Proverbs 29.8 sounds like what's going on these days in our city. Cities, scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. You look at all these protesters out there, they're so angry. They're so angry at whatever it is. And you see the result of that anger? And we'll see what Jesus says. And we'll see the consequence for it if it's not dealt with properly in, in Christ. Proverbs 22.24 Do not associate with a man given to anger, given over to anger. And do not go with a hot-tempered man, lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Proverbs 29.22 An angry man, 29.22, stirs up strife. And a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Proverbs 30.33 For the churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing of the nose brings forth blood. So the churning of anger produces strife. Hey, if there's anger around, I guarantee there's strife right nearby. Right nearby. Because Satan loves that. That's him. That's his character. We give him a place. One last passage. This is in Ecclesiastes. I'll read it for you. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Ecclesiastes 7.9 For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Don't you, believer, be eager to do that because anger resides in the bosom of those who don't know Christ. Don't you do it. We can do anything and everything we did before we got saved. Don't do it. So then, anger resides in the heart of unbelievers. And and I've seen this at times. People prone to self-righteousness, not forgiving. They've got anger. They'll express their anger in separating from people, whatever it might be. We're to forgive. Doesn't mean we don't have right boundaries, but we forgive. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is a glory to overlook a transgression. The reality is, if you have anger behind your actions, you're in deep trouble. You're in deep trouble. And by the way, this anger orge becomes seated. It becomes settled in your soul. It's not that outburst. It's a settled resentment, settled anger. Even can be translated resentment. The reality is we're not to allow anger to control us, as we'll see, because it's a very serious, serious sin. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Let's look there. Colossians chapter 3. Anger is never justified in Scripture. We need to let it go. Let God take care of it. Even if it's anger for a righteous reason, yes, we do get angry. We see some terrible thing or something happens that's wrong. We get angry for the moment. Yes, that's not sin. We give it over to the Lord. Lord, I trust you to take care of this circumstance. You'll take care of it. You're my only help. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. My anger is not going to do anything about it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. There, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. This is after revealing those who know Christ. Dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Colossians 3, 8, or 3, 3, 6. For on account of these things, the wrath of God will come. And in them you once also walked, and you lived in them, and we're living in them. But now you also put them aside. And notice what the first thing on the list is. Anger. Put it aside. Put it aside. You see, if you're just letting your spirit get angry, your spirit is out of control. Maybe you don't have the spirit of God in you to control that. That's possible, as we're going to see. And maybe you're on your way to judgment. But God is gracious, and he came to forgive and bring salvation. There is no room in the life of a believer for anger. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice, Ephesians 4. But instead, be kind to one another. Instead, be kind to one another. Don't just stuff it. Confess it. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God has forgiven you. The solution to anger is giving it over to the Lord and forgiving. And forgiving. So then, back in our passage, back in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard... That the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable before the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry, this is Jesus, God in human flesh, 
Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The context is guilty for murder. That's the context, by the way. You Pharisees, he's basically saying, see, the Pharisees, they never addressed the inward heart issue. They just did the outside. And the God of the universe says, if you've got ongoing anger with your brother in his eyes, you're guilty of murder. You see, because the root of murder is anger, by the way. The root of murder is anger. The command, thou shalt not commit murder, should have been a conviction to every one of these because every one of them had hated their brothers at times, had had anger in their heart. Should have convicted them, man, I've got anger, this is wrong. But it wasn't. They were hypocrites. They were externalists. The insides were dead, and the outsides were all clean. And he says, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be subject, literally subject, to judgment. (coughs) For those of you who haven't come to Christ yet, you have no control over this. You can't stop your anger. It's a manifestation of where your heart is at and where all of our hearts were at before we came to Christ. You're guilty. You're guilty in God's eyes. You're guilty. You say, I've never murdered. I would never murder anybody. Jesus says you're guilty if you're angry at someone else. He gets to the heart of the matter. Because the heart is from where these things come. Murder comes from the heart. That's where it starts. You say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. I appear very godly on the outside, but you'll be judged for your anger. You're guilty. Guilty. And brother and sister, we must see anger towards a brother and sister this way also. It's a terrible sin that is never justified. We need to see sin the way Jesus sees it. If it is enough, as we will see, to send a non-believer to hell, to be punished forever, we need to see if it is enough to cause God to send his very own son to go to the cross to die for our sins, we better see this anger as a serious thing. Now at this point, Jesus now gives two simple illustrations to reveal how they kind of skirted around their sinfulness with little words and ways. They didn't go out and murder anybody, but what they were doing revealed they were guilty of murder. Notice these illustrations. He says here, But I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and, and he connects it, verse 22, the end, whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And you go, what is that? What's this Raka stuff? Well, obviously, uh, the word is comes from the Hebrew word. It's not translated. It's just transliterated. So we're hearing it the way they would hear it in Hebrew. But what does it mean? It carried the idea of a verbal insult. And at that time, it was an acceptable insult with the Pharisees and people around there. You could insult someone and say certain things about them, you could, which reveals you've got anger in your heart, but you could still be righteous on the outside. You could say, you blockhead, Raka. You could say it in a way which reveals your anger. And you could get away with it in their system, which was only external. But Jesus is saying, I say to you, you say, you numbskull blockhead, it's an insult. You're guilty before the Supreme Court. Well, what was the Supreme Court? That was the 70, the Sanhedrin. They were the 70 legislators which determined the punishment for the most serious crimes in Israel, by the way, which included stoning someone to death, as in the case of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. If you read Acts chapter 7, Stephen is actually before the Sanhedrin there, and they are the ones who determined to go after him and stone him to death. And there were those who laid their coats down, Saul of Tarsus did, and, and approved of that action. You say, Jesus says, you're just, you just go to the point of verbally insulting one, revealing the heart of anger. You're guilty. You're guilty. And notice he, he, he ups that. He says, uh, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to what? Go into fiery hell. Yes, you've heard it said that murder is enough for Capital punishment. You've heard it said, and that's, that's the case, yes. But I say to you that if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty. 
If you even say something such as you fool in that context of being angry, you're guilty enough to go to what? To go into, to go to hell, Jesus says. This isn't my opinion. This is God's statement of truth. The reality is, if you have that heart of anger exhibited in those little tiny things, they would say that they could get away with and not be seen as being sinful. Now, he's not talking about like in the book of Proverbs where God speaks of the fool has said in his heart or even in, in, in Psalms. The fool speaks of those who don't know Christ. And it's not wrong for us to say that's foolish, that's not wise. But when we have a heart that says, you fool, we're exhibiting a heart of hatred and anger. He says, you're guilty enough. Even with that comment, it shows you're guilty enough to go to hell. Wow. You know, under our breath, we've probably all done it. I've done it. Jerk. You know, lame brain, whatever it is. It reveals anger, and it reveals guilt. Guilt. Our speech, very subtle at times, can reveal our guilt. Now, sometimes a lack of speech can reveal our guilt. We just ignore somebody. We treat them badly. We're not kind. We're not tenderhearted because we're angry at them. Because we're angry. They're not doing what we want. We're angry. The reality is, from our hearts come these things. Turn up a little bit to Matthew chapter 15. And hopefully, as this convicts us all, we will be in two places, one of two places. One, I am so sinful, I need a Savior. Or two, thank you, you saved me from this, and I'm so sorry I have yielded to this. Thank you. Matthew 15, verse 18. Jesus said, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those are the things that defile a man. The Pharisees are saying, oh, he's eating. He's got hands that aren't clean. He's defiling everything. No, 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 Jesus says, the stuff that comes out of the heart that comes out here, that's what defiles you. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile a man. They cause you to be guilty. It comes from the heart. Well, what are other manifestations of anger? Certainly little words under our breath, whatever it might be. But we know what anger is. We know what it is. We know what it is. And we are helpless. But Jesus Christ can deliver you and will deliver you every single time if, you are hum- if you're willing to humble yourself. Lord Jesus, I am so frustrated right now. Help me see this from your perspective. Help me be kind Change my heart, Lord. Humble yourself. But notice there's the reality of hell for murderers. He says, guilty enough for hell. The term fiery hell here comes from the Greek word Gehenna. The term Gehenna spoke of a garbage dump on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And that garbage dump was where they'd throw all their trash, dead animals, all that stuff, and they would burn. It was continually burning. Gehenna was continually burning. So Jesus uses this word to describe the punishment, it's called hell. It's a continual fire. In Matthew 25, Jesus makes it clear that hell was not for people. It was for the devil and his angels. That's what it was created for. Jesus didn't create it for people. But yet those who do not receive what Christ did for them will are guilty enough. You see, we're all guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. We are all guilty of anger. We're guilty of we're, we're guilty enough to go to hell for our sins. And Jesus came, and he went to the cross, and he bore our sins on the cross. He paid the full price. And all he asks of you is to turn to him, admit your sin, acknowledge it, humble yourself, and, and from that realize you need a Savior. And whoever will call upon the name of the Jesus will be saved. Lord Jesus, I believe you're God. You died for my sins. I believe it. Save me, Lord Jesus. He will save you. And you will not go to hell. You'll go to heaven to be with Jesus forever. You'll be cleansed of your sins. But the reality of hell is a, is a tormented place. It's a tormented place. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. After that, have nothing they can do, Jesus says. But I warn you... Fear the one whom after he has killed the body has the authority to cast you in hell. I say fear him. If you're not dealing with anger, maybe you don't know Christ. 
You better fear God. You better fear God. But you can be forgiven. Revelation chapter 14, let's turn there. This is the punishment for those who followed the beast, and we'll see that it actually has to do with hell. Revelation 14, verse 9. He says, And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark of his forehead upon his head, this is in the tribulation, it's not for us, but it's going to show us about hell. It's going to illustrate that. He will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which he has mixed at full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast, the image, and whoever receives the mark in his name. That's for those who take the mark. They're going to go to hell. And they're going to be tormented forever and ever because they rejected Jesus Christ. The free offer that you don't have to do anything. Just a free offer of salvation. But you say, hey, I'm not in the tribulation. That's not going to be me. Well, if you turn up to Revelation 21, let's look at that. Revelation 21, verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. That's the wonderful reality of, of heaven. We overcome through faith in Jesus, John, 1 John 5. But notice what he says. He says, I will be their God, they will be my son. But, Revelation 21.8, 21.8, but for the cowardly, unbelieving, and abominable, and what? Murderers. And all immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be at the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Did you catch that? said murderers. If you don't come to Christ and you're angry, you're guilty. You're guilty. The wages of sin is death. And there's no way to overcome sin and death apart from trusting in the only one who overcame it, Jesus Christ. God loved you so much, he did not want to. It is not his desire for you to go to hell. He wants you to be with him. But he, you can't be with him in sinfulness. You need to be cleansed because he's a holy God. And how you're cleansed is by trusting in Jesus for salvation. If you do so, you'll be cleansed of your sin. So let me ask you this. Have you ever been angry at anyone? Are you angry at someone now? Are you resentful towards them? Then in God's eyes, you're guilty. You're guilty. And the sentence is death, eternal death, torment and fiery hell. Very serious. So what do we do if we're guilty? What do we do? Notice he begins to share something that appears to be something totally different back in Matthew. It appears to be a different passage, but it is totally connected. Look at verse 23, and we'll finish up in these verses here. 23. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled with your brother, then come and present your offering. If therefore, in light of being guilty as hell, to go to hell for that, right? In light of that, this is what you should do. He says, if therefore, in light of the seriousness of the consequences for murder and, and the murder of the heart, which is anger... What should you do? Should you go as a Jew at this time and present your sacrifice? No. That's an external reality that pointed to Jesus. It's external reality. That's hypocrisy. Okay, yeah, I, I'm not, not doing, I got angry at them, I'm going to go do this offering, everything will be fine. No. Jesus says, if you're presenting your offering, remember your brother has something against you, stop what you're doing. Stop the religious stuff, you hypocrites. And go be reconciled. Even if it isn't your fault. He says, he gives them the benefit of the doubt. You remember your brother has something against you. Leave your offering before the altar. Go your way. Be reconciled with your brother. The term reconciled means dealing with mutual hostility. A change from hostility to an enmity for, to friendship. Mutual concession after mutual hostility. Reconciliation. Humble yourself. Address the problem. Bear the responsibility. Confess sin if needed. Seek to restore the relationship that was destroyed by your or their anger. 
There's a great principle here. Do you dare serve God, come to church, and have anger towards someone else? Do you dare to do that? Do you dare to leave that in your life, believer? The question would be, maybe you don't know the Lord. We're going to see that. You're going to pay every red cent, Jesus is going to say, if if something's wrong in your heart. You're going to pay every red cent for it because you're not covered by Jesus if you continually do this. Something's wrong. Folks, if you've got an issue with somebody, deal with it. Now, there are sometimes there's not any way to deal with it. You've tried your best. Scripture's really clear in that. You try to reconcile. You do what's right. You do what's right. A lot of passages... 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. I let it go. Out of love. I'm going to forgive. It doesn't mean you don't have a conversation, maybe in a marriage. Hey, this is really causing trouble in our marriage. Can we work on this together? Can you take care of this? It really would be a blessing to me, please. Right? Romans 12.18, as far as it is possible, so as depends on you, be at peace with all men. We saw this in 1 Thessalonians 5. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good. Do you think separating from someone, shunning them, not paying attention to them is good? Not at all. Think holding on to your anger is good? Not at all. Let all bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander be put away. Be kind to one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Just as God and Christ has forgiven. It doesn't mean there's not going to have boundaries. There are consequences for people's sin. And in the body of Christ, there are provisions for those who are in ongoing rebellion. We see that in Matthew 18. But just the little sins that happen around our lives with one another, things that make us angry, let it go. But you don't know how they hurt me. You don't know how they lied to me three years ago. You don't know. They didn't keep their word. We made a deal. They didn't do it doesn't matter. Be reconciled. Stop the mutual hostility and be reconciled. Otherwise, something's drastically wrong in your heart and you might be on your way to paying for every red cent of your anger in hell. If therefore, understanding the seriousness of anger, you're presenting your offering at the altar and remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there. Forget the religious junk in that sense. It's junk because it's all external. It's not true. Forget it there. Go your way. First be reconciled with your brother, then come and do the right thing. Present your offering. Be reconciled. Forgive. Let it go. Above all else. Don't be a hypocrite. Come to church. And you've dealt with your anger. Be reconciled. But notice, if you're not reconciled, you're going to face the judge. This is the example. This portion is very interesting because it seems like it's disconnected, and we'll finish with this portion in 25. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver to the judge, the judge to the officer, you'll be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you paid every last cent. You go, wait a second, is this just good legal advice? No, it's good legal advice. Make friends before you go to court. But the word here, I believe the if therefore connects with this. This term make friends actually is not translated very well. You could translate it, settle the matter, come to an agreement, be reconciled. Be reconciled, and it's, he's using illustration, before the process of becoming guilty and paying the penalty for your guilt comes forth. It's an illustration, just like you would with an opponent in law. Reconcile before you have to pay every last cent. Truly I say, verse 26, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. If you don't reconcile, if you don't have a heart to reconcile, then they might not be willing to reconcile, but if you don't have a heart to reconcile, you want to hold on to your anger, something's really wrong if you think you know Jesus. You're going to pay for that sin. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe you really don't. But as I shared, God is so good. Every one of us has had the anger that makes us guilty to go to hell. Every single one, myself included. I'm tempted right now at times to be angry in ways that are not right. We all are. But God gave a provision for forgiveness and deliverance from the punishment. You owe the punishment, but God sent his son and he paid the price instead. And if you pray and trust in him, you call upon him in the context of prayer, you call to him, he'll save you. He'll save you. 
And then for those of us who are believers, don't we dare, we should dare not allow anger in our lives. We need to confess it's very serious. It is extremely serious. It will cause us to have a satanic view towards those we are angry at. We will be like Satan. And if we continue to stay that way, maybe we are still in Satan's domain and on our way to punishment. Brothers and sisters, be reconciled. As much as it concerns you, be at peace with all men. It's a serious thing. Now, what about these things that happen to us that are not right and they make us angry in the moment? You know what? There's a righteous anger for a moment. Don't let the sun go down on it. Give it over to the Lord. Someone treats you wrongly. It's now, hopefully it's from God's perspective they're treating you wrongly, not from yours. That's maybe not be right. Let it go. Dear Lord, this is wrong. This is so wrong. The way this happened, Lord, it's in your hands. I trust you to take care of it. Take care of it, Lord. I trust you. You're a good God. You will righteously take care of everything. Fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man does much. Does much. Are you willing to let go of your anger today? Turn to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, are you angry? Be reconciled. Be reconciled. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word, and we are all guilty. And yet our guilt has been removed through Jesus for those of us who have trusted in him for salvation. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is still under your wrath, that they would turn to your son Jesus for a pardon for their sin. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. I pray they would just say, Jesus, I've sinned so greatly. I deserve your wrath. Forgive me. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Save me. Lord, I know that you will save those who call upon you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is self-deceived like the Pharisees, self-righteous, coming to church, playing games, yet still angry. Lord, I pray before it's too late they reconcile. And if they're unwilling, Lord, may they understand the consequences that maybe they aren't who they think they are. Maybe they've never been forgiven. And Lord, for each and every one of us who know you, Lord, may we be like Jesus. May we be forgiving, Lord. May we trust you with the things that go bad in our lives and the people that don't treat us right. May we pray for them. May we trust you with them. May you change them, Lord. May you watch over us in those situations. But may we be like you, forgiving and kind and tender-hearted. Help us, Jesus. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.